Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask right here at sfm.scot. I'm John Cole and this week we'll be talking with Stuart Cosgrove, how we'll be talking about the Premiership and the Championship and St Johnson and referees and all sorts of other things. I'll also be talking about a player who was a boyhood hero of mine, Alex Hamilton or Hammy of Dundee and Scotland. At the end of this weekend in the SPFL, Celtic extended their domestic unbeaten run to 36 matches in what turned out to be a tense 2-1 away win against a late rallying Dundee. They are now 25 points ahead of second place Aberdeen, who scored an impressive home win against Hearts at the weekend. And another three points for Brendan Rodgers' side will ensure their sixth consecutive title, only the fourth time that feat has been achieved, twice previously by Celtic in 1910 and in 1970, and by Rangers in 1994. Rangers, with new manager Pedro Cachinha at the helm for the first time, easily swept bottom club Hamilton aside at Ibrox. They're still third on 50 points, eight behind Aberdeen who have 58 each having played 29 games. St Johnson's 2-1 win against Motherwell at Fir Park shot them into 4th place with 43 points, leapfrogging Hearts who are still on 41 after their defeat at Pataudry. Kilmarnock and Partick Thistle played out a 1-1 draw at Rugby Park and they remain 6th and 5th respectively in the table. At the very bottom, Hamilton are holding up the rest on goal difference from Inverness but crucially only 8 points separate the bottom 6 so there's still a lot of action I think to take place there. In the Championship, Hibs had a home draw with Dumbarton, but second place Falkirk lost to late runners Morton, who are now third on goal difference behind the Burns and four ahead of Dundee United with a game in hand over Hibs and United and two games in hand against Falkirk. Morton, in fact, are potentially only four points behind Hibs. Late drama at the very top in the Championship? Well, we'll watch it with some interest. Well, the new Rangers manager, Pedro Cachinha, has attracted some criticism over his claim that Rangers are the biggest club in Scotland and that they have the best squad in Scotland. Maybe a bit optimistic, I think, in both counts, but I can't see the problem with a manager of any club bigging up his club or his charges for that matter. Except for the curious need for new arrivals at Ibrox to immediately go on the record to quantify just exactly how many years they think the club has existed. I think people are rushing too quickly to take offence at his remarks. As we talked about last week, the proof of Pedro's pudding, like that of all managers, will be in the eating, and we will watch with interest to see how the new experiment at Ibrox pans out. More Rangersy news. The Supreme Court hearing of BDO's appeal on behalf of Rangers Football Club against the Court of Session decision on the lawfulness of Employee B Benefit Trust Scheme took place last week. According to the Daily Record, the club, spelt the less usual way of C O M P A N Y, are appealing against the court of session decision which could affect clubs, this time spelt correctly, all over the English League. <laughs> However, submissions were made uh, at the appeal over a couple of days by counsel for both BDO and for the Lord Advocate, and the court has now adjourned to consider its decision. We wait with bated breath whilst the tabloids dream up yet another form of words to deal with the uncomfortable nomenclature surrounding it all. 
Referees, the poor referees are always in the headlines. Conspiracy theories, of which we are fond of in Scotland aside, it's fair to say that the Scottish variety are almost universally regarded by the fans as an incompetent bunch. A new blog for SFM by Old Heed to be published soon contains a suggestion to implement the free market in refereeing. In short, Old Heed's idea is that the SFA should provide referees as they do now. They should offer a refereeing service, in fact, which the SPFL as consumers should avail themselves of. However, the monitoring of the service should be removed from the provider of the service. The clubs should judge the quality of the referees, not the referee committee. And if they're unhappy with the service provided, they should be able to procure that service from elsewhere. Someone who recommends a referee for a particular match, for instance, should not be able also to grade that referee's performance, given that self-praise is neither honourable nor particularly useful. Also, it might be a good idea to go down the route the following England where a referee declares club allegiances. It might avoid the quite ridiculous situation that's pertained in the past in Scotland where a retiring referee makes a request to officiate in a game involving his favourite team as his last match. One thing that strikes me is this. Fans of clubs outside of the Big Two in Glasgow complain that they never get decisions in games involving uh, the Ibrox or Parkhead sides. What then are we waiting for? If referees are so weak that they pander to the masses, then let's get people in who are less likely to do that. Let's have a professional refereeing service, not just a bunch of self-important part-timers. Well, to help us to get through the maze this week in football, we are joined now by Stuart Cosgrove, broadcaster, journalist, TV executive and author. Stuart, welcome to the Weekly Monitor. Uh, it's been an interesting week in Scottish football, but first, Pedro Cachinha. Are people going to be a bit overboard complaining about his best squad claims? Well, I think, you know, uh, the guy arrives, uh, he, you know, people have already been questioning his pedigree and whatever, you know, a new manager doing a press conference, uh, well briefed to say the right things. I would be hugely disappointed if I was a football fan, we had a new mon- ma- manager, and he started by saying how rotten everything was. So unquestionably, Pedro's arrived and wants to talk this up and, you know, talk up the club, its abilities. And, uh, you know, I think maybe there was <laughs> more than a touch of kind of grandiosity about it and maybe delusion about it. But nonetheless, you know, you don't want a manager turning up at a press conference and pouring cold water on your ambitions. Yeah, well, that's what I kind of thought as well. I mean, you know, he's perfectly entitled to say that he thinks he's got a great squad. I mean, apart from anything else, that's the sort of thing that's going to make his his players feel secure and feel as if they've got a future. Yeah, indeed. And and really, if you looked uh, through the squad, there's no doubt that there are some decent players and uh, probably a few that actually are hovering about in the kind of sidelines as well that could uh, do a job for Rangers. Uh, But but one of the things that's been uh, surprisingly lacking within the squad is any real sense of deep, deep camaraderie. Compare and contrast them to less well-funded squads who seem to be able to, you know, battle. I mean, I've just been interested in watching, uh, you know, how St. Murren have been uh, 
virtually transformed in recent weeks with Jack Ross, where it feels as if he's managed to communicate with them that they've got a fight on their hands and now they're going and getting results that, you know, four or six months ago they would never have dreamed of. So I think that, you know, that's one of the first things that Pedro has to probably do is ignite his squad with some self-belief, you know. You think that's one of the the, the perhaps more difficult jobs that he's got? With all the negativity surrounding Rangers for various different things, it it, it probably is a different... a difficult thing to try and get the squad all all singing for the same hymn sheet. So yeah, speak. well, uh, you know what? Here, here's one thing that kind of connects um, that that question. I think it's possibly one of the hardest things to do in modern management because, firstly, you've got players, many of whom we all think are overpaid. Secondly, their uh, much their lives are much more short term. They arrive on one year deals and either stay or go. Many of them come on loan deals for three months, six months, you know, whatever. And I think kind of getting some sense of kind of a connection between players and gelling them and believing that they've got some commitment to the club, its history, the fans, whatever it is, that I think is the hardest job of all. Because, you know, if you look at Brendan Rodgers at Celtic, he's largely, with one or two uh, exceptions, largely working with a squad of players that Ronnie Dyla had the season before. Mm. And and suddenly Rodgers has made them believe that they're capable of going on this extraordinary unbeaten run. And that's something that Ronnie Dyla seemed to just kind of, you know, stagger from one draw to a defeat to another looming game that kind of threatened their, you know, their, their, their season or whatever. And it does seem as if Rodgers has had a magic touch just getting the, the, the players to believe in themselves and believe in each other. Well, speaking of belief uh, and, and speaking about your team, St. Johnson, uh, doing very well, uh, leapfrogged Hearts over the weekend there yep, to go into yep. fourth place and now going for third. Is it, is it realistic to look for third, especially oh, when oh, Rangers maybe oh, getting that new new boss bounce? Well, I mean, OK, who knows? I mean, certainly uh, if you had asked me uh, under the previous interim management, uh, although Graham Murty actually did pretty well, it was always going to be kind of, you know, sort of slightly kind of, you know, a bit kind of half half assed and yeah. I thought St Johnson would could definitely catch Rangers. I still feel not confident, but I feel that that's within the realm of the possible. Mm. I mean, you know, they would need a couple of bad results for us to get neck and neck with them. But St. Johnson are formidable. I mean, here's here's a squad of players. Not only have they got belief in each other, they've got something else to prove. What, what Tommy Wright's magically done is he's pulled together a group, a generation of players who've never been uh, the best paid, but who've managed to eke out a career as uh, professional footballers. Uh, They've got one or two of them. I mean, you know, Murray Davidson, who came on as a substitute against Motherwell um, on on Saturday, he's already got a Scotland cap. You know, I don't don't know whether he'll ever get another one, but he's certainly got one. And uh, our goalkeeper, Xander Clark, has been, you know, hinted as the the next young uh, star goalkeeper for Scotland. So suddenly these players who are from uh, a relatively small club, not hugely well-resourced or remunerated, are are suddenly uh, connected with each other. They've got tremendous amount of fighting spirit. And the midfield as well, we've got people that are not in the team that could easily get into the midfield of other Premier League teams. They fight hard, they work hard, they close people down, they press very high uh, on on the pitch away from home. And they're just, you know, sometimes... You know, a lot of people criticise them saying they're not pretty to watch. But you know, if you're a St. Johnson fan, I tell you, it's pretty for me, that's for sure, you know. The St. Johnson 
manager it w- was quoted in the very early days of the recruitment process at Ibrox was w- was very much a favourite at the time so you're yeah. probably relieved that, that, uh, that they left him alone uh, very much so I thought they would in the end leave him alone and for the very simple reason than that I think there's still a kind of there's still a sort of uh, belief system within the support at, at Rangers that believes that they should attract quality star names big names you know big hitters that kind of thing and probably the rival of Brendan Rodgers is up the expectation on that and I just thought that Tommy for all his for all his excellence and for all his achievements and for all his brilliance would have been seen as to them a slightly second tier booking and that that's to St Johnson's advantage obviously yeah. how long we can keep that going I don't know but for now you know he's he's settled in Perth he's got a really good kind of lifestyle there he's enjoying being at the club and I think he's enjoying the fact that he can get on and really really build a CV because if you look at Tommy you know he's broken almost every single rule that Scottish football fans would say firstly he's a goalkeeper and we know that there's <laughs> the old cliche that goalkeepers don't make good managers he's broken that one um, there's a thing about oh he was an assistant in Northern Ireland or people that come over from Northern Ireland get found out eventually Mm. well it's six seasons now and he's not been found out yet so I think he's good at kind of also one thing I really really respect uh, Tommy for is actually to do with his personality he's got an attitude and it's still an attitude that's very kind of you know, genuine and and he's quite a warm man. He's a very welcoming person. Mm -hmm. He loves a joke. He loves a wind-up. I had a a colleague of mine at the BBC uh, who'd gone up to interview uh, Tommy just two weeks ago and it was just as you were saying before the speculation uh, about Ibrox and Tommy greeted him at the door and said, oh, the BBC at St. Johnson. I must be getting quoted for the Ibrox job. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you know, he loves those kind of playing with the journalists and playing the games and all the rest of it, you know. Um, There was a comment, and a a negative comment about him being quoted for the Rangers job in, I think it was in the record. And uh, Tommy went out on uh, the club Twitter feed saying, oh, we know that the story's coming from my old, good old friend Gordon Bannerman. Now, Gordon's a local journalist who's just recently left the Persia Advertiser, so he's left a staff job. And Tommy just joked, he's desperate for freelance work now, and I'll (laughs) say anything to the record. So he loves all of the banter as well. Good man. Well, Good obviously, man. Uh, some uh, upbeat noises coming from uh, McDermott Park there. But uh, but a genuine question then. As a fan of a team who's now closing in on a European place, yeah. uh, Armageddon Watch, uh, given Celtic's apparent league monopoly, which is undeniable, I suppose, yeah. is our game, in your opinion, better, worse, or in the same shape as it was six years ago? Well, from my own... <laughs> You know, you see everything through the prism of your own team, don't you? And I think if you maybe asked uh, a Wraith Rovers fan or a St. Murren fan, they might be slightly more sceptical. But there's absolutely no question in my mind that the last five or six years has been glorious for St. Johnson. You know, firstly, I think that there's been the... um, Firstly, there's been our cup win, obviously, Uh, our consecutive top six finishes, great nights we've had in Europe, beating Rosenberg of uh, Trondheim, um, you know, beating um, a a Swiss team, um, God, what's their name, Scott? Bloody, I've forgotten forgotten who we beat now. (laughs) It's it's also... It's a wee um, team, anyway. Hi, exactly. (laughs) So, so, you know, we've had a really, really good... um, 
uh, time of it. And yeah. the other thing is that our budget has remained fairly fairly level. We, yeah. We've produced a profit this year, uh, a decent profit this year. Now, some of that profit is um, connected to the second tranche of the sale of Stevie May, and um, next year we'll show the sale of Michael Halloran to Rangers. So there's been the, the, the club's history of selling players on um, to other bigger and better resourced clubs uh, has been good for us as well. Uh, but the, the pressure is always on us to produce new young players, either people that we get from the lower leagues ourselves or, or players that have come through our own academy system. So uh, Xander Clark could be the current example of that. Although he's a goalkeeper, he's working well with Tommy and uh, our, he's managed to keep our... Um, for, for once first choice keeper Alan Manis out of the team and Manis of course is an internationalist for Northern Ireland who was recently in the European Championships so we've got a 23 year old Scottish guy keeping a seasoned internationalist out of the team and uh, he's getting more and more attention with his displays he got injured uh, against Motherwell and had to be subbed at half time by Alan Manis uh, but I don't think the injury is a bad one and I'm sure he'll come back pretty much straight back into the first team Well okay as you say there the Subjectively speaking, from a, a St Johnson perspective, you know things are looking good. But I'm, I'm also thinking about even the championship. Uh, people thought that when Rangers were, were were promoted to the the Premiership, that the interest would wane there. But that, that certainly hasn't happened at all. I mean, the the, the championships are really interesting league this year. And well, course- I've I felt that take, take that. I, I would argue that actually over uh, a 25 year period. If you looked at, so I'm meaning over a much longer period, if you looked at what was the old first division, I think it remains one of the most competitive divisions in British football. It really is a great league. And we were in in that league uh, with Owen Coyle and then eventually got out of it under Derek McInnes. But we were in that league for something like nine seasons and Mm -hmm. couldn't get out of it. And we were one of the better teams, come close, come close, got slightly tricked by the whole Gretna um, debacle. But nonetheless, we were there or thereabouts over nine seasons and it was tough going now that was a good St Johnson team that just struggled to get out of that division a wee bit like maybe I say a Falkirk or or you you might say you know Morton or whatever who knows either Falkirk Morton or Dundee United will not get up into the into the Premiership and will have to fight again next season and all three of those clubs when they entered this division kind of sniffed a chance of winning it you know Uh, and I think if it hadn't been a Hibs I was going to say runaway Hibs are hardly runaway but they're certainly comfortably at the top of the division but it's an exciting league and I don't think I think there's way too much sneering about Scottish football it seems to have almost become a fashion now you see it with a lot of these kind of, you know, clowns that work for kind of talk sport and things yeah. like that, who don't actually have any interest in Scottish football, and their their knowledge of it is, is paper thin, and yet they just know that because Celtic are effectively currently uh, comfortably top of the Premiership, that they can sneer at it and say, no, it's a one-horse race and all the rest, who cares, and all the rest of it. Well, I care, we've still got a lot to play for, we could get yeah. a European place, and, and you know, top six, you can sneer at top six, Dundee are still in for top six, so are Kilmarnock, so are Partick Thistle, and getting top six adds another few hundred grand to your to your budget. Yeah. So it's not to be sneezed at by any means, you know? Yeah, of course, I think all these people, they, they, they tend to equate money with quality, which is not always the, the, the case, of course. And Morton no. are, are definitely the team at the moment, I think, in the championship with a bit Incredible, of... Incredible, 
yeah, yeah. momentum anyway. Uh, yeah. And also, if you look at the bottom half of the of the Premiership, there's only about eight uh, points, I think, separating the top, the, the 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 bottom seven teams, the bottom six or seven teams. teams so, yeah, so there, yeah. there there is an awful lot to play for, uh, you know, as, as you say. But yeah. but but one of the things that I, I also wanted to ask you about, uh, moving on for that optimism <laughs> about about the mm. game in general, uh, is uh, referees. We've been talking about it in SFM uh, about, and I, and I know that these things always come up when there's a you know that there's there's a big game uh, involving either Celtic or Rangers, and there's a bad decision, yeah. and then everybody starts, gets a lot of publicity. But, but from my perspective, there is a there's often been a claim by people like yourself that 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 your team doesn't get a fair shake of the of the of the, of the whatever it is you get a shake of when you when you come to Parkhead or you go to Ibrox yeah. or, or or if Celtic and Rangers come to your place and and, yeah. and a lot of people feel that that the big teams tend to get because they've got bigger crowds behind them they tend to get decisions that other people don't and yeah. Old Heed has uh, has put together a blog for uh, SFM proposing a situation where there's a new referee service where the monitoring and, and the the, uh, the assessment of the referee service is moved to the customer which would be the clubs rather than the the, the, the SFA themselves so wh- yeah. wh- wh- how do you feel about that? Well I, you know I can see I absolutely see the logic of it and there's a kind of much fairer logic of it because currently the way that it works is the SFA effectively play judge and jury yeah. uh, on, on something that they effectively control, and that's never that's never a, a that's never a, a a healthy thing for um, that's never a healthy thing for any uh, democracy really. But there is but there is another way of thinking about it, which is to take Old Heed's argument and just nudge it on a bit further, and that would be to say why doesn't uh, an independent national body, Sports Scotland? take on uh, the management of the referees and provide the service back to both the association and the leagues because if it's the league that become the the league that becomes the kind of if you like the service provider mm-hmm. then what happens when it's the league cup you're back to basically the same argument which yeah. is the person that provides the service makes the decisions you yeah. know so maybe to take at arm's length into something like sports scotland who you know are who are part of if you like, uh, well, they're a quango, they're a quasi-autonomous national government organisation, and Sports Scotland obviously uh, give grant and aid to uh, the SFA, albeit for things like you know disability football and you know extending women's football and, and a lot of kind of good causes that they support. But nonetheless, um, that would be for me a much fairer way of thinking about it, so that referees were therefore required um, to fulfil a whole set of already established standards that are broadly expected in standard light in, this, in, in, in our life right across a government whatever an expectation for example of, a, of, of being public about your conflicts of interest yeah. which has been a big big issue around the Bobby Madden thing where people say oh he's a, a old firm season X season ticket holder at eyebrows blah 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 well these things these public statements of interest need to be need to be uh, out there public as well now not just I don't mean just you know season ticket holder or I once went yeah. to Motherwell or I went to two Aberdeen games when I was a kid I don't mean that I mean there's a whole range of of different things that need to be there. Mm-hmm. Firstly, uh, firstly, the you know the the second job issue, which has flared up in public life because of um, uh, the appoint- yeah, yeah yeah the appointment of the, st- uh, the Daily Standard or Evening Standard editor George Osborne. 
how many jobs in public life should a remunerated referee have? Because quite a lot of them are teachers, they're lawyers and whatever. Does that element of their job have in any way a potential conflict of interest? Mm-hmm. And I think they need to be able, to, there should be a register of interests. I, I, would prefer, I would welcome those across quite a lot of public life. I, I, would, even, I would even subscribe to that as a, you know, a media journalist. I would be, if somebody said, well, it's a requirement of all BBC staff, BBC staff that you put forward your uh, register of interest. I'd be quite happy to turn around and say, this is my, uh, these are the sources of my income. These are my relationships, you know, in my case with Channel 4. I am a season ticket holder of St. Johnson FC and a member of the St. Johnson Supporters Club. I'm quite happy to register those. Yeah, I think, I th- that- I th- I think some, uh, some crockery's just gone flying at the BBC there. <laughs> 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 but, you know, there is a tradition within, there is a tradition within sports journalism of of trying to disguise who you support. Yeah. And I've always found that a very odd kind of position to take. And it's to people saying things like, oh, if I said I was a, and I'm going to take this away from Rangers and Celtic, if I said I was a Dundee fan, it would it would undermine my objectivity. And you think, really? Would it? You yeah. know, are you not capable of an objective you know, observation, you know, I'm quite happy to say when I thought St. Johnson were gash and we deserved to get turned over, I'm quite happy. I mean, I fell out quite publicly with one of our previous managers um, over, uh, you know, the conduct at the club, and that was uh, Steve Lomas, yeah. you know. Um, and, uh, you know, quite happy to to make my arguments against St. Johnson should they be necessary about pricing of games and things like that. I've been quite public, so I've been critical of the club. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can still love them and still care about them and still want them to do well, but still be honest about things that are not working, you know? With referees, though, Stuart, there's, there's often been an argument that the, the players are professional, they're highly paid, yeah. um, they don't have second jobs, well, most of them don't, and, yeah. and therefore the referees should as well, especially since they're adjudicating in matters that sometimes, uh, you know, that, that can that can cost clubs millions and millions of pounds. Yeah, exactly, and uh, of course some of the referees benefit from the remuneration they get from uh, UEFA games and things like that, but yeah. if you were to take the standard payment, I think they're on 800 quid now, aren't they, yeah. uh, for a game, well, if you're, if you're refereeing every single week, these referees are already on more than the majority of the St. Johnson squad. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't kind of, I don't buy the idea that they're just poor guys that turn up to do us all a favour, you know. Yeah. I think that for some people it's now a career a career path, you know. Yeah, but did That's, they put enough into it? That's what I mean, you know, I mean, if you're if you're a, a, also a lawyer or a teacher, well, a teacher, you've got to work for, for 42 hours a week, whatever it happens yeah. to be. If you're a lawyer, you'll probably be working even more than that. And, yeah. you're, and you're also squeezing in your refereeing duties at 800 quid a pop or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it's great money, fantastic. But at the same time, are you actually given value for that money if you're only doing, you know, like four or five hours a week? Well, I, I, I question that. And also, uh, the other thing too is, um, should you always be, for example, you know, a top league referee? I mean, I know that sometimes if they get caught out and there's been a bad game, they get sent down to the first division for a week or two, but they always bounce back, don't yeah. they? So there seems to be a very clear 
hierarchy of referees. Now, I kind of understand why that might be, but it's also the case as well that um, the rules of the game are the same if you're in the Scottish third division um, than if you're in the in the Premiership. Uh, and if you're in a playoff game in the pyramid, the rules are still the same as if Celtic are going for, you know, six in a row or whatever it is, you know. So your knowledge, your understanding and, and of, 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 of the game really uh, ought to be... Um, uh, appropriate to whatever level you're, you're refereeing at. I, I just think greater transparency. I'm still a great believer that I think that referees should have this ridiculous kind of constraint placed on them where they can't come out and explain their decisions until they're hounded out. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And that's yeah. often what happens. Uh, and there was an experiment for a couple of years with a thing called The Whistler, which was a website they used to have to explain decisions. But I think that sometimes it's the case. We know that not, not, not all fans all know the rules of the game. Quite a lot of players don't know the rules of mm. the game. And the rules change quite a lot. So I, I would welcome a referee that was blogging or a referee that was kind of contexting decisions that were taken and whatever. Um, you know, because... Uh, and also being able to be very... Uh, honest about it. I mean, the recent incident where um, Celtic beat St. Johnson 5-2 up at Perth, and there was one of the most horrendous refereeing decisions I've ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. where a cross into the box, um, and uh, Keith Watson stopped the ball with his hip, became a penalty. It was just extraordinary. Now, here's the interesting thing. I was at the game, uh, I was in my normal seat in the East Stand at Perth, and uh, I looked in front of me, and a wee guy right in front of me had, was watching the playback on his on his mobile on BT on the BT app, mm-hmm. and he said to me, "It's not a penalty. He's hit his hip. It's hit his hip." And we knew it was not a penalty before Dembele even put the ball on the spot to yeah. score the goal. So the idea that somehow it would stop the logic of the game, um, or or it would stop the flow of the game, mm. is really uh, n- not true. There's enough ways now that you could kind of have quality video playback um, for for games uh, in the certainly in the top league. You know, uh, this this may strike you as kind of being odd, but. Every single game that's on BBC Alpha, the BBC have bought the rights to it, or BBC's Gaelic Channel has bought the rights to it, and they're played out either live or as a, a package, and then, of course, they have the rights through the uh, association to the highlights of all the games as well. Yeah. So the BBC has to film all of these in order to generate the highlights, or at least the league has to film them, yeah. in order that the highlights can be generated, whether it's the chosen match or the live match or not. So therefore, if Motherwell are playing Dundee and it's not the live match, there's still a feed of it. There's still a there's still an engineering feed of it. So it's not beyond the realm of technology for the referee to access those feeds, you know, and make decisions there and then at the ground and either allow or disallow. My own view there is I would reduce it to three things: uh, goals or disallowed goals, depending mm-hmm. on what it is. Uh, penalties or disallowed penalties, depending what it, it would be, and red cards are sending off or not sending off, yeah. given given that these are the things that most likely impact on the outcome of the game. Uh, but I wouldn't be wasting time uh, taking kind of um, you know sort of Hawkeye arguments over a throw-in or yeah. a you know or a corner or anything like that. You just say no, red cards, goals, and penalties. That's all that counts. You so, know. so can I sum- summarise you, your your view on the whole thing as as being uh, yeah, a bit of professionalism, uh, some accountability, as 
old he'd suggest in some transparency, um, w- yep. which is which is definitely desirable, and judicious use of uh, of new technology. Yes, that's right. And the one other thing that we mentioned that it wasn't in your up some there was that, and it connects to transparency, is like journalists, you're capable of being objective whilst having once supported a football type team when you were a kid. Yeah. So, so being a Dundee fan when you were 17 year old doesn't stop you at 28 uh, making a decision that might impact negatively on Dundee. Do you know what I mean? It, you know, it's just crazy, all of that. That's what I don't like it with journalism and I don't like it with referees either. Be clear about what it is that you believe. And if you happen to be a Rangers fan or a Celtic fan or whatever, why create this false identities, disguise, mm. layer upon layer of conceit or deceit that when actually it's revealed, you look an even bigger fool um, and, and your objectivity is then seriously questioned. You know, that's the thing where they discover a photograph of you, a Celtic supporter's <laughs> night, or, you know, all that stuff. Well, and of it course. Just is, it just goes around the web forever. Of course, the whole calling point. Calling into question your objectivity. But the whole point of all this stuff with journalists saying that I support this team or that team, anybody but Celtic or Rangers, is yeah. that when, when somebody comes out and says, somebody like yourself, say, I'm a Justin Johnson supporter, the first time I ever heard that, I went, aye, right, you know. Aye, <laughs> because aye, yeah. Yeah, it, it turns out that. that Nobody believes a journalist when they say what team they support. And that's, that, right, that, that's yeah. a wee bit unfortunate as well, you know. It is, but um, there's uh, a range of different ways of proving that. Of course, yeah. season <laughs> tickets, photographs of you, uh, arrest sheets, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, before, thanks, th- thanks a lot for joining us today, Stuart. It's, yeah. it's, it's been fun as always. Uh, but just uh, one thing before you go as well, non-football matter. I mean, I, I know I know you're a music lover. You've you've written uh, eloquently and prodigiously about, about music as well. In fact, you've got a book out yeah. at, at the moment, uh, Young Soul Rebels. Um, but uh, Chuck Berry, I know you're a soul person, but but uh, yeah. Chuck, Chuck Berry's passing, it, it must have registered a blip. Yeah, well, very much so. I mean, I think that, you know, he wasn't somebody that I would be, you know, emotionally very close to. But intellectually, there's no question that he was one of the kind of figures that triggered the true kind of upsurge of R&B and rock and roll yeah. at that critical moment, you know, that he would have been in there as a massive, massive influence on the Beatles, on Presley, on the Stones, you know. It would be unthinkable for modern music to have existed without, you know, uh, Chuck Berry being in there somewhere, kind of, uh, you know, lighting the flames of it and that. And, and so although he wasn't in my kind of halcyon, there's, there's no question that he's a huge, huge figure and, of course, much missed. And thanks very much for lighting up the, the programme today, Stuart. Thanks a lot. All the best, John. Speak soon, mate. Bye. And now, just before we go. And just before we go, I want to mention a wonderful player from the 60s who's a big hero of mine, Alex Hamilton of Dundee. Alexander William Hamilton was born in Armadale, West Lothian on the 5th of April 1936. After school, he joined the local juvenile side West Rig Bluebell, where he actually played outside right. Uh, Hammy, as he became known, uh, was working then as an insurance agent when he joined Dundee in 1957. He didn't have to wait long for his first team chance, uh, starting in a 4-2 defeat at Hearts in the League Cup on August the 31st of that year. Alec would not have imagined then, probably, that a league medal and a European Cup semi-final was only a few years away for him. He was a big favourite with the fans and very popular in the dressing room at Dens. Hammy was instantly recognisable with his trademark crew cut and his very infectious and pitched grin. 
At five feet seven, he wasn't tall for uh, where he settled down. That was as a right back. Uh, but he had tons of pace, which helped him become one of the first of the new breed of overlapping fullbacks in Scotland. His teammate Bobby Wishart once described Hammy as a live wire, a joker, and a trickster, and says that Hamilton's gang of Hugh Robertson, Ian Ewer, and Alan Gilzean were always up to mischief. Gilzean himself, recently a featured character in this slot, thought of Alex as a great character and an unbelievable guy. The highlight for Hamilton at Dens came in 1961-62 season, where he was another present as Bob Shankly side-lifted the Scottish League Championship, and the following season played in all eight ties as Dundee shocked Europe on their way to the Champions Cup semi-final. During that winning season, Hammy made his international de- debut when he played for the Scottish League against the Italian League at Hamden, and the same month made his full international debut against Wales. He took over from Celtic's Donkey Mackay and quickly made the position his own. In fact, with the exception of a very experimental Scottish squad which played in Spain in 1962, a game where Bill McNeil played at right back and Scotland lost 6-2, Alec Hamilton's 24 Scotland caps were consecutive. On November the 9th, uh, sorry, 29th, 1961, he was one of three Dundee, Dundee players, along with Ian Ewer uh, uh, and Hugh Robertson, who played against Czechoslovakia in a World Cup playoff match in the Hessel Stadium in Brussels. The only occasion in the 20th century that three Dundee players played together in the same Scottish side. His 24 Scotland caps remain a Dundee club record. Four of those, incidentally, were against England, and he was never once on the losing side. Alec Hamilton had a party piece where he played keepy up with a sixpence before flicking it into the air and catching it in his pocket. More than that, however, he was a wonderful footballer, one of the best fullbacks of his generation, and he wore the dark blue Dundee and Scotland with distinction. I met him outside Celtic Park around 1968 after a very tense and exciting reserve match that had just taken place there. Celtic had just edged at 4-3 with a last-minute Joe McBride goal, and I saw... Alex standing outside the front door and recognising him from his Scotland in the D-Days. Uh, he had then stopped playing. I, I was very much in awe of him uh, and asked him for his autograph. Um, he actually had featured in the very first uh, televised game I ever saw, live televised game I ever saw on television. Uh, that was as a kid in 1964 when Scotland played England at Hamden and Alan Gilzean scored the only goal of the game. But he, he not only gave me his signature that day, but he engaged me in a 10-minute chat about Scotland, about football, about footballers, joking with players who were walking past, coming and, coming and going, having a lot of fun, and taking great pride in his, by then, uh, senior statesman role in the Dundee set-up. Another here without feet of clay, Hammy gave me, and probably hundreds of other youngsters, a story to dine out for forever. Alec Hamill played for Dundee for 11 years and captained the Dark Blues in the latter stages of his career at Dens before moving to South Africa in 1967 where he played for Durban United and managed East Durban United. He returned to Dens Park in 1968 to run the club's lottery and I assume to assist the youngsters given his presence at Celtic Park that day before becoming a match day hospitality host with full-back partner and friend Bobby Cox in 1989. Alex sadly died in 93 at the very young age of 57. But his legacy lives at at Dens uh, with a a hospitality lounge named in his honour. And in April 2010, he was inducted into the Dundee Hall of Fame. Like most football greats, though, Alec Hamilton belongs to us all and he deserves to be remembered.
Well, that's about it this week, except to add my own tribute and thanks to the late, great Chuck Berry, who passed away on Saturday. And I'm grateful once again to Stuart Cosgrove for his contribution to the Weekly Monitor and to you for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. See you next time.